At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and we are back this week with another boobs episode. Um, So last week we heard two stories about nipples and boobs gone awry. And this week we've got another story, and and this one's going to be brought to you by producer Abigail Keel. Abigail actually went out and and interviewed this woman, her name's Sage, and and Sage had responded to our call-out that we put on a show a few months ago asking for boob stories. It's not as like, whoa, as um, finding an extra nipple. But I also know that I'm not your typical pregnant person and I don't have your typical story. Okay, so Abigail, what is this story about? Hey, Hillary. So this story is actually about Sage's whole life, um, but it's sort of told through the lens of her boobs. The lens of her boobs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that lens. (laughs) Like like boob binoculars? Exactly like boob binoculars. They're sort of boob binoculars that kind of focus in on a story of identity and selfhood and (laughs) self-acceptance. All right, well, take it away, Abigail. Sage Forbes Gray wrote in to us asking to be interviewed about her boobs, but she doesn't love that word. Um, It's funny. I don't often call them my boobs. I guess I generally like refer to them as like my chest. Sage is tall. She's got short, dark hair, a few grays. She's a high school algebra teacher. And the evening we met, she was still dressed for work. A striped button down, slacks, men's shoes. She told me she was also wearing a sports bra to make her chest look a little flatter under her shirt. Currently, I'm wearing... This pink and green and blue bedazzled plastic uh, bracelet that my son made me. I'm not like fully committed to sort of traditional male business wear. Sage identifies as genderqueer. That means she doesn't feel like she fits into one box. She's not a feminine female woman, but she's not a masculine male man. She sees herself more as in between. And she's pretty much always felt this way. As a kid, she didn't notice anything different about herself. She had the same genderless bowl haircut as every other child of the 80s. We were back in the Oshkosh Bagosh age where, like, kids just wore clothes. There wasn't, like, the boys' clothes and the girls' clothes. We wore a lot of turtlenecks. It wasn't until middle school that Sage started to feel like she stood out. 
when people started transitioning from, like, the kid clothing that their parents bought for them to choosing their own clothing that I realized that I sort of wanted to keep wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts. I had peers who, like, regularly shopped at Banana Republic. And so there was just sort of a hyper femininity and masculinity that I hadn't encountered in elementary school. And I think that's when I really realized that I was not that invested in it. Her friends' bodies were starting to change, too. The girls were becoming rounder, curvy at the hips, and in other places, too. Like, uh, their chest. And I had no breasts. None. I really didn't mind that situation, but I just was like, oh, I must be XXY. XXY. As in, the chromosomal syndrome, where you have an extra chromosome that gives you characteristics of both sexes. Basically, Sage thought she might be intersex. See, in addition to being flat-chested, she also hadn't started her period yet— And she had heard that some intersex people never menstruate. She didn't tell anyone her theory. She just sort of imagined that it was true. She liked the idea of keeping her flat chest forever. So at 12, she had no period. 13, no period. 14, finished her freshman year of high school and still no period. But then, eight days before her 15th birthday... I got my period, and my boobs just exploded. Like, I went from maybe a triple A to a C over the summer. And so I think, like, my chest was making up for lost time. But uh, I still have stretch marks from that because it was really quite a, quite a growth. <laughs> Sage was not XXY. She was plain old XX. And now she had to go bra shopping with her mom. I, I know that some women, that is a really exciting moment. I don't remember feeling particularly excited. I remember feeling like they were a bit of a nuisance. And was it something like, I remember when I I was in like middle school and I got boobs and like suddenly all the boys in class were like teasing me. Did you have any, like, were there any sort of other people realizing and reactions? I mean, it's so hard. Like, I don't know if it was because I didn't have boobs that no one was really that concerned or it was because I was giving off other signals, but to be completely honest, I felt fairly betrayed by my chest. I was like, I sort of loved it, loved this triple A situation, um, and now I don't have it. And I think, I think that my peers, although they maybe didn't have the language for that, for like what was going on with me, I mean, I didn't even have the language, sort of saw me as something like a little different from a girl who'd be super, super excited that they just got boobs. Sage was the one with a curvy body now. She had C-cut breasts, long blonde hair, which, you know, that stuff was kind of nice because it helped her fit in. But deep down, she still saw herself as the flat-chested girl with the bowl cut. Then one day, she went to a jazz band performance at another high school. She couldn't keep her eyes off one of the musicians. I realized I was attracted to the female bass player, and I was like, oh! It had, like, never occurred to me that I was attracted to women, and it just hit me, and I was like, done. I'm attracted to women. Sage runs with this newfound clarity. She tells her friends. She eventually tells her parents. Everybody's supportive. But Sage still feels kind of lost. She doesn't really have many models of queerdom at high school. There's one gender nonconforming teacher who's sort of her mentor. But what about her generation? She gets her first glimpse of kids like her at 17. She's applying to colleges, and she does an overnight visit at Oberlin. And I just had never seen such a many splendored gender spectrum in my entire life. I saw 
men who were less invested in sort of a more macho masculinity, who were more effusive, who had longer hair. There were women with shorter hair who were not lesbians. And there was visible showing of affection between same-sex couples. Um, people were just wearing all sorts of weird clothes, you know, like kids go to college in like their pajamas, you know. <laughs> Even that was sort of a delight. Yeah. So you like go on this visit and you're like, this is where I want to be. Like, did you know that like you wanted to go there? I knew immediately that I would be not at all abnormal um, and that I was going to get to explore and learn about who I was. So she goes to Oberlin, and she loves it. She starts wearing a lot of cargo shorts, and she shaves off her hair, dyes it blue. She gets her eyebrows pierced. She joins the women's rugby team. She meets trans kids and poly kids. She hadn't even heard of those identities before. And one day, her whole rugby team decides to go get piercings together. It's the early 2000s. Piercings are in. And Sage gets her nipple pierced. Then later, she goes back and does the other. Which is a really bad idea. You should just go for them both at once because it hurts a lot. And I think might as well just hurt a lot at once instead of two separate occasions, especially since you know how much it hurts the second time. <laughs> I I want to know more about that decision. Like, wh- wh- why why did you do it? Ah, uh, well, um, I think it was related to my gender expression. I also think it was a little bit of peer pressure, and you know, it seemed sort of cool. It seemed like it might feel good. I was like, it's something I could keep to myself. <laughs> um, But I do also think it was sort of, I was at a point where I was feeling frustrated about my chest and they just didn't feel, they they just weren't my ideal body parts. (laughs) And so I think maybe it was just a way to feel like I had some sort of control or some sort of power over this part of my body that was generally just sort of a nuisance. Something else Sage started experimenting with in college was binding. She'd wrap something tight around her chest, underneath her shirt, to make her boobs look flatter. But it was too uncomfortable to do all the time. They're just sort of like in the way a little bit. And how I imagined myself when I like thought of, like I saw an article of clothing and I would imagine how it would look on me, I wouldn't factor breasts into the equation. And then there, there they would be, and suddenly... Like, no, I don't want to wear, like, a V-neck T-shirt because it looks totally different than it does on that, like, adorable male model. And, you know, um, I love vests, but it's just not doing what I want it to do. Maybe Sage wasn't a male model, but she did start doing drag. Ah, my drag name was Jason Sparks, 80s rock star extraordinaire. Jason wore a yellow tank top and black combat boots. I had some pleather pants, which mostly inspired the persona. I would bind. Um, My hair was dyed blonde for most of the time, sticking straight up in the air. And then I would, like, do a little bit of facial hair. She actually had a trick. The best hair is pubic hair. (laughs) So if you cut some and you wash it and cut it into little pieces and then put a little bit, just Elmer's glue. It is the most effective. So, Um, And I would, you know, wave my arms around and, like, shriek and get, and, like slide across the stage on my knees or like kick up into the air or um yeah just sort of like a hyper maybe billy idly type guy yeah and what did, what what did that feel like it was fun yeah 
I mean, people used to always say, Jason Sparks is not that different from you. <laughs> I just sort of accentuated me in like a, a male form. Sage played Jason on stage, but she knew people who were doing things like taking hormones and modifying their bodies. Were you considering transitioning at, like, that point in time? Yeah, I mean, so I think when I was growing up, I didn't really know that there was a thing called transgendered. I knew there was a thing called transvestite. I knew there was a thing called having a sex change, and that's what I knew. I didn't know any actual people who, besides, you know, like, famous people. Um like RuPaul. So uh, when I went to college, I actually met some people who went with by other pronouns or were gender nonconforming, and then a few of my friends had top surgery. Top surgery is essentially an elective double mastectomy, which, you know, when Sage pictured not having breasts, that seemed appealing, but also permanent. She wrestled with this question for years. I kept having this sort of tightening in my chest when I would think about top surgery where I just was not sure. And, you know, it's a pretty big decision. Um, And so I just felt like it's just not something I could do if I wasn't 100% sure. Sage says that's the frustrating thing with this stuff. She likes being able to try things out. Like after college, she went by male pronouns for a year and she ended up switching back. But that experimentation is why she now identifies as genderqueer. It's a term that encompasses all the possibilities. But in a world like ours, where gender is so binary, sometimes you have to pick sides. Deciding to stick with she and deciding not to have top surgery were just decisions that made a little bit more sense, but they were compromises. They weren't perfect decisions. There wasn't, there's no middle ground between having top surgery and having C uh, chest. It's a huge, expensive decision to get top surgery. Sage just can't justify it without feeling certain. So she keeps her boobs. Coming up, Sage's boobs grow on her. Literally. Don't go away. (laughs) At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We're back with Sage Forbes Gray, a gender queer high school teacher who lives in Brooklyn. Sage moved to New York after college. She figured 
It was as close to Oberlin as the real world was going to get. And she signed up for a teaching fellowship. It was kind of like Teach for America. There was a woman in the program named Amber, and Amber was from Kansas. She had a kind of traditional feminine look, long curly hair. Sage wasn't impressed. But as I went through the program together, Sage and Amber wound up talking a lot about big picture stuff, what they each wanted for their lives. I think we both thought we wanted to have two kids. We both knew we wanted to stay in New York. We both knew that we were invested in, you know, gender diversity. Then one day, Amber comes over to help Sage move. She's carrying a microwave down the stairs, and she trips, hurts her leg. Sage drives her to the hospital in the U-Haul. When they get there, Amber can't get out of the truck. So Sage lifts her up and carries her to a wheelchair. Later, Amber tells Sage how sexy that lift was. She'd only ever been lifted up by dudes, really, and, and they'd always grunt. Sage's lift had been silent. And so a romance was born. After a few years, Sage and Amber got married. And as things got more and more serious, those kids they'd been dreaming up started to feel more real. When you were thinking about, like, your future self having kids, were you thinking about being the person who, like, carried and birthed those kids? Negative. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I remember listening to Heal the World by Michael Jackson and being like, I'm going to adopt. Like, that that occurred to me at 9 or 10. I just had that in my mind. I was like, I'm going to adopt. And then when I realized I was queer, I was like, oh, well, that's very convenient. This will work out great. Even better, Amber tells Sage she wants to carry a baby. Sage is like, perfect, you and not me. So they settle on a sperm bank, and they pick a donor that they like. They give it a few tries, then a few more. It's expensive, but they try seven times until Amber gets pregnant with their first child, Dante. Amber gives birth to Dante at home, in a tub in their living room. They're finally parents. There's just one thing. It costs us about $10,000 um, to make Dante. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I mean, that definitely informed sort of our route in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you knew you wanted more than one kid or we definitely knew that we wanted to have a sibling, you know, if we could. So we explored adoption. Um, we explored international adoption. We explored private adoption. Um, both were prohibitively expensive for us as two teachers. They settle on foster care. They find an agency, and it's even got a rainbow flag in the window. But at one of their training sessions, the trainer starts saying stuff like this. What do you do if your foster kid is gay and you think being gay is wrong? Sage didn't have a problem with the trainer discussing what to do if you think your foster kid is gay. It was the, and you think being gay is wrong part that upset her. I mean, it felt terrible. It felt super alienating. And we probably should have walked out right then, but we just sort of thought, oh, maybe this trainer is just a little weird. But what ended up happening is they let us finish the training. I think, you know, they let us finish the training and then they never placed any kids with us. The other people from their group were getting placements. Sage says she thinks they were discriminated against because they were a same-sex couple. Now, I looked into discrimination in foster care and adoption, and it's real. In the U.S., at least three states allow foster and adoption agencies to refuse to work with LGBT couples if it goes against their religious beliefs. And Nebraska outright bans same-sex couples from fostering. But New York, where Sage and Amber live, is one of the most progressive states when it comes to protection for LGBTQ people. Here, there's a state law prohibiting discrimination in the foster care system 
based on sexual orientation or gender identity. But it does happen. Anyway, Sage and Amber decide not to file a complaint. It's hard to prove, and they want to move forward. They really want another kid, and it's not looking like it's going to be through foster care. Amber says she definitely doesn't want to be pregnant again, and they're stuck. And then, one night, Sage is riding her bike home through the park near their house. And yeah, the wind, you know, is like blowing on my my face. I'm going down this hill. There's nobody there. I mean, it's such a wonderful experience in New York to be alone. And it just hit me. And I said, I didn't have top surgery and I didn't transition because I'm supposed to carry a baby. And I was like, what? (laughs) But there was something about it that it was like the opposite of how I used to feel about thinking about having top surgery, where my chest would clench up. And my chest just sort of opened up, and I was like, huh, maybe that's why. And it's like, I don't even believe in fate, so I don't even know. Like, I was talking like I was in a movie. Um, And and I think it was also one of these moments where I was feeling so powerless with this foster um, care situation. I was like, no, I actually have the equipment and the ability, probably, to make this happen, and I can do that. Sage goes home and talks to Amber, who's very surprised, but also excited. And they get the process going. They call up the sperm bank, and it turns out they have sperm from the same donor they used for Dante, so their kids can actually be biological siblings, which is great. I thought, because what if they want to find their donor, then then they can share that experience together. Um, And Amber was like, who's always more practical and less emotional than I am, was like, or they could, you know, give each other a kidney. Just a few months after Sage's revelatory bicycle-in-the-park moment, they give it a go. And bam, she gets pregnant. Which is insane. And I just feel emotional even saying this, but I just know so many people who've had such struggles to carry. And I feel guilty because I it was very easy for me. So, and as a result, I was completely ill-prepared. Yep, it all happened so fast that Sage sort of forgot to stop and think, like, oh, I'm getting pregnant. Me, the business casual guy looking genderqueer lady. She tells people right away because she knows it's going to be weird. She gets three copies of A.K. Summers' book, How to Be a Pregnant Butch, as gifts. And one friend forwards her the Longest Shortest Time episode about it. That's episode 41. And she gets some wardrobe advice from her gender nonconforming friends. They recommended, like, suit jackets and, like, fat guy button-downs. Because often, you know, like, guys who are overweight sort of have pot bellies that resemble pregnancy bellies. Um, And, you know, they advised me, you're going to have a really hard time finding pants, and you should just buy the pregnancy pants. Just try to buy the, like, most gender-neutral ones you can. You are not the only pregnant person, even even not even like cisgendered person who doesn't want to have hyper femme maternity wear. But as I always said as sort of a joke is, you know, there's no men's maternity section, which is really my problem. What well, was it like like once you were pregnant and like starting to show and starting to notice like the physical changes? Yeah, I mean, I do think in general as a queer person who's reproducing Um, The world thinks they are entitled to a lot of information, where the world is just, curiosity is totally normal, and yet, you know, people just lose their sense of other people's privacy. And so I was rightfully concerned that people would ask me a lot of interrogating questions about how I got pregnant and, like, my donor and if I knew him. And, you know, I had to do a lot of education around, like, language, like, donor as opposed to dad. Um, 
And so I did, I, it was weird. I, I did, I remember telling Amber before I got pregnant that I was really nervous about how the world was going to respond to me being pregnant. Sage says that, yes, even in liberal Brooklyn, she's used to being read as weird. She gets stared at, or worse, ignored. She couldn't help but wonder what people would do now, when her already masculine presentation was accompanied by a big pregnant belly. And I figured it was either going to get better or it was going to get worse, and I couldn't decide what was going to make me more pissed off. Um, Like, obviously, being treated poorly when your body is, you know, being held hostage by another being um, is not— is not a, a great thing, but I'm used to that. I'm used to people, I'm just used to people not being quite as considerate to me as as they are to other women. And so I, I was, I thought that would be weird if that suddenly started happening. But the part I was really ill-prepared for was this like acceptance into the woman club. Um, it's like open-armed, like, now I'm going to touch your belly, and now we're going to, like, talk about our kids. Like, women who I'd never spoken to at work. And I'm, maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. Maybe we just didn't have anything in common, and now we have something in common. But it felt to me like I was suddenly, yeah, in the woman club. In a minute, Sage walks into the clubbiest woman club of all woman clubs and likes it. Stay with us. <laughs> Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western, with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Adidas, Elf Cosmetics, and Lego. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. You can save on everything you need for summer like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're back with Sage Forbes Gray. When we left off, she had just gotten pregnant, way more quickly than she'd expected. And she was dealing with some uncomfortable body changes. Sage had been wearing men's boxer briefs for a decade, but now they were too tight. She says she cried when she had to switch to low-rise maternity underwear. But she sort of saw that coming. The thing she didn't see coming was her boobs. Sage was under the impression that they wouldn't really grow until after the baby was born. But by the end of her second trimester, her size C was a size D. Yeah, I mean, my mom's um, encouraged me to buy nursing bras, and I was, like, really resistant because they don't really sell a lot of sports bras that are nursing bras. Um, And I do remember that being very strange, going to the maternity section and getting, like, measured. It was one of those other, like, welcome to the woman club moments Mm -hmm. 
where the woman was like, oh, you're getting nursing birth? How exciting. And I was like, this is not that exciting for me. Can we just do the measurements so I can leave? Sage says it was a lot like when she was 15 and buying her first bras. She just kept wishing she wasn't there and that this wasn't happening. Sage was getting these nursing bras because she figured she'd probably breastfeed. But it wasn't her favorite idea. I was just like, ooh, that's a lot of thinking about your breasts, a lot of, like, dealing with your breasts. So I was worried that I wouldn't like it, but I did feel committed to it. I was like, I'm just going to have to suffer through it. So she stocked up on size D nursing bras, and then she gave birth. When Elliot was born, he was really, really small. Um, And even though he was two weeks late, he was not even six pounds. Two weeks late and not even six pounds. Sage was all up in her head. She's comparing this tiny, alien-looking Elio to their other kid, Dante. He'd come out really chubby. She started to think, well, these kids have the same donor. The only difference with Elio is me. Maybe it's my fault. It was especially bad those first few days at the hospital. Sage was alone. Amber couldn't stick around because she'd gotten sick. You know, I struggled to get out of my bed, not because I couldn't, but just because I was just so, like, emotionally weighed down by the experience. And so a lactation consultant, like, came into my room in the hospital and, and suggested that there was a meeting literally across the hall from my room. But I went to that first meeting with my tiny baby, and I sat next to this woman who had this, like, giant baby. And I, of course, you know, made excuses about my tiny baby. And she's like, oh, my first kid was five and a half pounds, and he looks great. You're doing a great job. That encouragement sent Sage in a new direction. I think I was even more, like, called to breastfeed. I just felt like that was something I could do to make him bigger. And I know it wasn't my fault that he was small, but I still felt guilty about it. Um, and when he was able to do it, which I was worried he wasn't going to be able to because he was, he was little, um, I just remember being so happy that he was able to eat. Yeah, did you like it? Did you like breastfeeding? Um, physically, it was fine. It was, like, sort of weird, you know? I was like, it sort of feels like peeing a little bit or, like, eating. I don't know. Like, something's going on with the inside of my body, interacting with the outside of my body. Um, and so, yeah, uh It was very sweet, you know. Um, You have this tiny little thing, and all they want to do is be cuddled and and fed. (laughs) So, did it make you think differently about your chest? Like, you know? Yeah, totally. I was like, breastfeeding. Finally, these these two are doing something useful. (laughs) You know, I just for so long I just seen them as in the way, and finally. They were there doing something. And it's and I thought back to that moment bicycling in the park where I was like, yeah, I didn't have top surgery so I could do this. Breastfeeding made her feel like her boobs had a purpose and that she belonged. She started going to La Leche, the ultimate woman club, and when she walked in the door, everyone was smiling at her. You might be wondering what it's like to breastfeed when you've got nipple piercings. And it turns out they didn't get in the way of Sage's breastfeeding at all. One day while she was pumping, she looked down and saw that milk was coming out of the pierced holes on either side of her nipple, as well as from the nipple itself. So Sage just kept going. Elio started to fill out, look less like an alien, and Sage was surprised by how connected she felt to breastfeeding. She wanted to keep going until Elio was two. Except, you know, as a mom, you don't always get to call those shots. He started getting a little less interested in breastfeeding around, like, January. I would try to feed him, and he would just say... No. And I'd be like, you don't want any milk? No milk. So Sage started to back off breastfeeding Elio, but she found a way to stay on the lactation train. 
And so I was still producing milk and my friend was having trouble with production and I was able to um, give her like a bottle a day and and that was like awesome. You know, I'm feeding this baby, I'm helping this other baby build immunities. So it was like, yes. She kept pumping for her friend at work. Pumping at work for someone else. She was that into breastfeeding. But eventually, the friend didn't need the milk anymore. And it was time to stop thinking of her body as a food source. You know, just noticing again that my shirts, like, don't look as awesome. My body in general is still not what it was before. Um, And so I think, like, my chest is something I'm, like, getting used to again. You know, my hips are a little bigger. My tummy's a little bigger. Everything's a little looser, you know? And now that she's no longer breastfeeding, there's a lingering question. Are her boobs useful anymore? Now that they've served their purpose, maybe she should just get rid of them. No, I mean, it did occur to me, like, this summer, I guess this would be another opportunity to think about having top surgery. And I didn't have that tightness in my chest, but I just was like, I'm just... She started to think about surgery, though, and little kids at home, work, sick time. It didn't feel practical. But it was more than that, too. I didn't have that tightness because I was, I realized it's just not, it's not, it's not my life's course. You know, I back to sort of feeling more at home with my body, which is a good feeling. So Sage has decided to keep her boobs with their stretch marks that remind her of her once flat chest and their nipple piercing holes and their droopiness where they used to be full of milk. Sage has been through a lot with her chest and she's keeping it smoothed down in her sports bra. So, Hillary, yep. Sage says her nipple piercings closed back up after she was done breastfeeding, and she's not planning on getting them redone. And if you want to see a picture of Sage as Jason Sparks, you can do that on our website. That is, of course, longestshortesttime.com. And while you're there, we want to hear how you viewed your life through um, boob binoculars. Tell us everything in the comments for this episode. That's episode 109. This podcast is produced by me, Hillary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. We also used music in this episode from Johnny Ripper. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado and Antonia Acatunde. Special thanks today to Valerie Caesar. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We're going to be talking about this really interesting thing. Um, It turns out doctors are required by law to warn women of the risks that come with C-section. But when it comes to vaginal delivery... There's no one standard thing that doctors are required to tell women about uh, the risks of vaginal delivery. And many tell them nothing at all. Do not miss this conversation. It is super important. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, there's another show that I think you'll like. It's a new show from our friends at Gimlet called Twice Removed. It's hosted by bestselling author AJ Jacobs, and it looks to prove that we are all literally one big family. The latest episode looks at the immigrant experience and how to connect your kids to families across the world. There's a part of me that wants them to know that, like, the parts of my personality that I'm proud of come from people they've never met. You guys are going to be into this show. Go subscribe to Twice Removed. 
And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Right now, we're especially looking for stories about working and motherhood. Maybe you came back from maternity leave to a job that no longer existed, or you tried to get hired while pregnant and it didn't go great. Or maybe you're one of those people who has an awesome workplace. We want to hear everything. Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. What if technology could resurrect a late loved one digitally over your phone? To you, Charlie. To you, Rossi. Clink. Did you just say the word clink? Well, I can't really clink the glass, so... But what if the price of the service was so high it threatened your job, the people around you, even your freedom? for centuries and if they ever do release you whatever comes out of that prison won't be you anymore how far would you go to bring someone back to life it's weird how sunny it is charlie it's the wrong weather for the terrible thing i'm about to do what terrible thing life after the new drama from panoply and ge podcast theater search for life after one word in your favorite podcast app stand up you sing your wolf yeah This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. With over 4,200 hotels worldwide, 